0: And I think that if you maintain good relationships with people, if you act in a way that is helpful to others, that is kind, that is giving, that you just hold yourself to a high standard, then opportunities will appear before you and just say yes. <laughs>
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is your host, Mario Fraioli, and we are trying something a little different this week. Adding a little intro to the show, and I would love to know what you think about it. So hit me up on Twitter at Mario Fraoli and share your thoughts with me. My guest this week is Io Wang. Io is a two-time Lake Sonoma 50-mile champion. She is the reigning U.S. 50K champion. She's a 238 marathoner, Olympic trials qualifier, and an Under Armour and Camelback-sponsored athlete. She also happens to be one of my own athletes. I've been coaching her for two plus years now. And we recently sat down for a fairly long time uh, 90 minutes, longest podcast I've recorded to date. And we've covered all kinds of stuff from how she got into running. How she got into competitive marathoning and eventually trail running. We talked about her recent trip around the world, all the different places that she visited, got to run, the cultures that she experienced. And it was just a really great chat, and I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with EO Wang. All right, world traveler Um, EO Wang, you're a tough woman to pin down between, uh, between destinations. I think you're off to the airport here in a few hours, but thanks for having me and welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast.
0: Thank you, Mario. It's so good to see you and be in the same town as you for at least a couple <laughs> hours still.
1: <laughs> um, you've been all over the place, quite literally, uh, in the past Year almost exactly a year ago, you left uh, mid-August of of twenty seventeen um, to go around the world, and technically returned home um, <laughs> at the end of at the end of June, and have been on the go ever since. Um, where are you off to next?
0: So this afternoon, I'm taking a flight from San Francisco to LA. So I'm going to be working on a film shoot um, for one of my sponsors, out in the Mojave Desert for a day. And then I fly back to San Francisco on Friday. And then on Saturday, I leave for Switzerland. And I'll be in Switzerland, France, and Italy through um, UTMB week. And then I'm going to Maine (laughs) straight from there for a wedding. And then I come back home um, after Labor Day.
1: So for those of you listening, EO is a professional ultra runner she is not a professional traveler (laughs) at least by at least by title but you could you could fool a few people with that based on where you've been over the last year or so so let's rewind the clock um to last august you left on around the world tour with your husband sean um as as work uh Mm -hmm. you were definitely traveling for work but could you explain to my listeners what you were doing over the past year
0: um so I have been a teacher and educator in a private school in Marin for the past several years up until 2017 and one of the families that I've gotten to know through my school wanted to take their children who are high uh, high school age abroad for a year and they asked if my husband and I would come along and mainly for me to be a teacher and tutor so that their kids could do a full year's curriculum and not fall ba- behind on school once they came back. And so, of course, this is the opportunity of a lifetime and my husband <laughs> quit his job um, at Google and took a year off and I... um started on sabbatical from my school, but I actually ended up um, deciding not to go back to my job at the school. But anyway, we left mid-August for a year's travel and teaching around the world, and we ended up going to... Officially on the trip, I think it was 26 or 27 countries. Yes, I have a hard time (laughs) keeping track um, because there were some countries that were on the original itinerary that we didn't end up going to, and then we added countries. Um, And then after the trip officially ended and our employment with the family officially ended, Sean and I spent a few more weeks just traveling to different places in Europe that we've always wanted to go to. And then we came home at the end of June.
1: How many flights were you on (laughs) in that time?
0: Um, In 10 months, so between August of 2017 and June, we were on 103 flights, um, which is a lot. (laughs) And that included everything from jet flights to hot air balloon flights to helicopter flights to small airplane flights. Um, I've done so much flying and actually since I've been back, I've flown at just about the same rate actually. <laughs> I've been to Colorado and Arizona and Oregon and back to California.
1: Yeah, and so for those of you listening, to just put this in context, I live what less than two miles away from you yeah. um, and I coach EO and we're, we'll get into that here later in this conversation. I've seen you maybe half a dozen times <laughs> since you've, you've been home and we tend to to run together um, fairly frequently when you are here, but you just haven't been here. Um, and through all of this, you've still been running, not just running, but also training, more so the second half of your trip. How cool was it for you to run in all of these different countries around the world?
0: It was probably my favorite experiences throughout my travels was the opportunity to run And like you mentioned earlier, the first half of the trip, the first four months or so, um, I decided to go into it with no set training plan um, and to just sort of fit in running when possible. And of course, it's still like a major part of my day um, during those travels. But I knew I would be going to some places such as Sub-Saharan Africa and being on safari where running is a real challenge. And so I didn't want to stress myself out by having this training plan that I had to stick to. And I just kept it really relaxed. Like if there's an opportunity or if there's time, then I definitely want to get out for a run for the day. And later in the second half of the trip, um, we were in places where I knew that running was more possible and I could be much more consistent and so I asked Mario to write me what I call the world's most flexible training plan where we basically would have a set of seven days and some key sessions and I would try to fit them in depending on the location and the terrain when possible and of course that had to be very flexible. Um, But we also visited some what I call dream locations for running like Patagonia and Um, The Atacama Desert and Japan where I probably ran too much, (laughs) but it was just so incredible to run in those
1: places. Yeah, there was one point I remember checking in with you and... I think you totaled about ninety miles worth of running miles that week, but between everything else that you were doing and the steps that your watch was counting, didn't you have about one hundred and twenty or one hundred and thirty miles on your legs? Yeah,
0: we had some um, pretty intense weeks because, you know, on top of the running, which was sort of an extra in my itinerary our travel itinerary always included a lot of tours, some of which were walking tours through cities or they would be planned excursions or hikes. And so there definitely were a few weeks when I would be running 80 to 90 miles a week. And then on top of that, we would be doing hikes and walks. And just according to my pedometer, it was like an extra 20 to 30 miles a week um, and a lot of time on feet because... I I know that most of your listeners have likely been on a two-week vacation where you end up in a place and you do everything, right? Especially if you're runners, you go for a run in the morning and then you go for a tour or you even things that you don't expect to add up, such as going to a museum. Well, you actually end up walking two to three miles when you're touring a museum Um, or just going for a walk. To explore the neighborhood that you're in. So we were doing that for 10 months straight, <laughs> just sort of moving from one excursion to another.
1: And it was every few days. You weren't in a place much more than, um, I believe, like a, a week I or so. I think the at a time.
0: longest place we stayed was Cape Town for 10 days. Right. And that was definitely the longest place we were in any one location. A typical stay was, three days on average. Yeah,
1: And you had a pretty decent handle on your itinerary ahead of time, maybe not the the hour by hour, but how did you go about deciding when you would run in a given day?
0: I would always try to run in the morning because given um, the fact that we also had to fit in schoolwork during the day, it would get very challenging if you put off the run. And so... My thing was, I didn't really care where we were. I would get up at five or six in the morning and figure it out. Either if I had to, I would go to the gym and just hit the treadmill or you know, have a coffee and go out for the run. Um, that was really the only way to fit it in consistently was to get it in before the morning because we rarely had super early morning activities. Most of our day plans would start at 9 or 9.30. So I would just work backwards from when the first item on the itinerary was. I would say, well, if something starts at 9.30, we have to meet our guide. So give myself 20 minutes to breakfast and shower. So that means I should be back at the hotel by 9. And then if I want to run... Maybe an hour, I would give myself actually 90 minutes because when you're in a new place, it always takes you a lot longer to kind of figure out and get a sense of the directions. And you stop a lot too to um, look at maps and things. And so I would say, okay, so I have to be out the door by eight, so I need a coffee at seven. <laughs> I sort of just work backwards from there.
1: <laughs> the, the coffee is a key component of all of this. Oh,
0: yes. I've had so much coffee all around the world. Um, and there, are, there were some really good coffee experiences that I had. Um, some that I was expecting, like Ethiopia, for example, had amazing coffee. Um, and some that I was surprised by. For example, I had no idea, actually, that Vietnam was a huge coffee producer right. and also has a big coffee culture. And so you can get excellent, excellent coffee in Vietnam. And they sell it in little street stalls and you buy like almost like little shots of coffee. So you'll see people in the morning in Vietnam doing um, their sort of morning routine where they have shots of coffee on the side of the street. <laughs>
1: We need that here in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, and door.
0: you know the the cost of living is so low there. It's like ten cents for a shot of coffee. That's oh, amazing,
1: <laughs> and it's great coffee.
0: Yeah, it's amazing coffee.
1: Uh, so you weren't solo on this trip, as you had mentioned. Your husband Sean was with you. He did almost all of your runs with you um, until the end. Talk a little bit about that experience of sharing all of these incredible places by foot with your husband.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm so thankful that Sean was able to come on the trip with me. I don't think I would have been able to do nearly as much running outside um because as a female runner, you know there are times when you just don't feel safe. And so having the two of us together um I think I typically try to choose our routes and sort of have the plan for what to do. And it was really great to have Sean as safety, as support, as a motivator. Um, And we ran almost always together, except when one of us was sick or a little hurt or something. Um, And we would sort of just get in these ridiculous situations on the run and having somebody else to talk you through it and to sort of come up with a solution was really great. And there were Definitely places where we ran into sketchy things, um, not so much sketchy people. I would say that we were never in a situation when I felt unsafe or we were never accosted by people, but we were definitely accosted by dogs a few times and also angry geese.
1: <laughs> where was that?
0: Southeast Asia, especially. Um Myanmar has a big feral dog population, as does Thailand, although in Thailand, they're more um, habituated to people, so they don't tend to chase you as much. Um a lot of times, the dog situation is that locals feed and take care of these dogs, but they don't keep their dogs at home. I mean, dogs belong outside. Right. And so the dogs just hang out. And there's something visceral and instinctual in a dog to chase things yeah, that are running. Very
1: primal instinct. Yeah. For them.
0: And they might be friendly dogs if you walk up to them, but when you run by them, they go after you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so you had mentioned how on the first part of this trip, I mean, I didn't write you a training schedule. You were just trying to fit it in when you can, wrap your head around the routine and, you know, just get out without any real plan other than to explore where you were. Was that challenging for you to not have any races on the schedule, not be working towards something and just going out for these exploratory type of runs?
0: It was awesome for about two months because I, up until that point, had been training and on a plan for practically every week of the previous, I don't know, three or four years since I started doing ultras, you know, getting ready for Western States or whatever big race was up next. And maybe I would have a week or two off, but then it was back on some sort of plan. Um, It felt very liberating for six to eight weeks And then I just kind of gave myself a plan. I
1: remember you wrote me at one point, I think you were in Africa and it was Uh not safe for you to run outside and you're like, I'm stuck on the treadmill for the next week. Will you send me a handful of workouts (laughs) Uh, basically so I I don't drive myself crazy here?
0: Yeah, Um, I I like to think of it as you just want to maintain some sort of consistency eventually. I think... If we are runners with goals who have been training for goals our whole life, it's very refreshing to take a step away from that. But then our personality will always be to gravitate towards a goal, right? And so I knew that it would be... um, a good reset for me to just take it day by day and run, I don't know, 30 minutes if I could, an hour if I could. And that was really fun for eight weeks. Yeah. And then it sort of got to a point where I just needed to tell myself like, hey, get out for a run every morning. That's your goal. Mm-hmm. And I, st- I just took it from there. Yeah. Like I never told myself, oh, I need to run 10 miles today or 12 miles today. It was more of a tomorrow you need to wake up at 6 and go for a run. Yeah.
1: And when you came home for Christmas break in December, we sat down and you're like, I've been thinking about some races and I think I want you to write me the world's most flexible training <laughs> schedule for the second half of, of our journey here. Um, what was that like to be able to flip the switch back toward being <clears> an athlete again, being on a schedule, even though you had this crazy travel itinerary, um, and then the final part of that is is roping Sean into that with you <laughs> and, and making him do all of these workouts and long runs. Um, yeah, while you were while you were still gallivanting about the world.
0: Um, it was exciting for me to be back on a plan um, because I felt like okay, now I can actually do some work and make some progress and have something to focus on that's for myself. And I mean, let's be honest, training for an endurance race can be a pretty selfish and lonely experience (laughs) Um, because you just have to set that time out to do what you need to do to accomplish what you need to accomplish. Um, I think that it was definitely an added layer of stress to think, okay, uh, where are we going to be for the next three or four days? Where can I get in a tempo run? Where can I get in a hill workout? I mean, we might, sometimes the schedule and the location didn't really line up. And we, I would have to, you know, talk with you and switch some sessions around because I'll be like, hey, I'm on Bora Bora and there are no hills here. <laughs> Maybe I could just do this on the treadmill instead. Um, or i be like, hey, I'm in the Peruvian Andes and there's no flat here. <laughs> and plus we're at 10,000 feet, so I don't think I can do a tempo run. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of a lot more adjusting that had to be done and a lot more thinking involved in terms of choosing a route and an itinerary um, for where I wanted to go. But it also made me seek out more locations to run. For example, when we were in Australia, um, we were on the Gold Coast and in order to sort of find some good places to run, uh, we ended up renting a car and like Actually, going to the Blue Mountains, for example, which were incredibly beautiful. And I'm so glad that I did that. So, being on the plan, yes, was stressful, but also was an impetus to get out there even more
1: and get creative. And with get some creative. Of the where you went, right? And
0: it also helped me feel like I can really run through anything. Like, if I can accomplish this workout, um, in a weird place with conditions that I'm not used to. You know, maybe I it, it's like hundred degrees and ninety percent humidity in Rio de Janeiro and I have to do two mile repeats. Like if I can do that in those conditions, yeah. then I can accomplish anything
1: yeah, anywhere. It, it translates into other aspects of your running, but also your mm-hmm. life. And you learn how to problem solve.
0: Yeah, you have to problem solve. You also have to be tough um because having lived in Marin for a few years you kind of it's easy to run here right we have beautiful bike paths and beautiful trails and the trails are nice and it's safe and it's always beautiful um so having to deal with tougher conditions i think definitely made me tougher and more flexible as a runner
1: pardoned you a little bit
0: yeah so like nowadays you know i used to be okay i have to have coffee 45 <laughs> minutes before the run i can't eat anything like all of these outside factors have to be so perfect for me to feel like I can accomplish a run and now I'm more of the yeah I'll run right after getting off a plane doesn't matter I'll just eat whatever okay. <laughs>
1: um I don't want to stay on the trip for too too much longer but it is a really fascinating mm-hmm. thing to discuss you experienced running in many different countries and you've got to experience many different cultures, what were, let's just say, three of your most memorable experiences? I know that might be hard to pin Um, down.
0: Ethiopia was an exceedingly memorable place for running. So Ethiopia is home to the greatest some of the greatest distance runners on the planet. I think the Kenyans might argue with that. <laughs> um, and the runners are their heroes. So you land at Addis Ababa Airport and you the first thing you see when you exit is a giant photo of Haile Gebrselassie. Um, so cool. He's like a local businessman, hero, politician, Developer, all of the above.
1: Probably the most recognizable yeah. person in the country. Well,
0: for many years, it was the Ethiopian marathoners and distance runners who were actually bringing back to Ethiopia most of the foreign currency and development money, and so they would come back, invest in their local communities, end up sometimes supporting an entire town um, and building, you know, hotels and businesses off of their earnings. And so they very much give back to their families and their communities with what they accomplish um, on the running scene. Um, And Ethiopia is in itself a fascinating country having never been colonized by Europe. Um, They were briefly had an Italian influence but it's always remained very independent and it's also a... um, It has a long history with Christianity, um, and there are a lot of very ancient churches and sacred sites in Ethiopia, so they have their own flavor of Christianity. Um, And they love running. But the thing that I found interesting in Ethiopia was running is very much a serious pursuit. Like you run because you need to make some money for your family. Otherwise, you farm or yeah. you work.
1: It's not a recreational activity. It's not a recreational activity. Like it is activity. here. Oh.
0: Um, but when you run in Ethiopia, everyone will try to run with you because they're just so excited to see other people running. And we were um, staying in a town called Lalibella, which is in the Ethiopian highlands at around 9,000 feet. And we arrived late in the afternoon and Sean and I had a few hours before sunset, and so we decided to go out for just a shakeout run, nothing serious. Um, but everything is kind of serious at 9,000 feet. <laughs> um, so the way the town is situated, there's no flats. You either go straight up or straight down and back up. So we left sort of the, the gates of the hotel and were dressed like runners and instantly like 10 kids... Just say, "Running, runners, runners!" And they follow us, and so we had this whole posse of kids run with us. Um, and we started going downhill, and they were all super excited, like wearing you know, jeans and flip-flops for yeah, the most part.
1: They're certainly not dressed for it they're
0: not really dressed for it, but they want to be like, "Oh, run, run that way. Like they wanted to point us to the best running place. So we ran maybe two and a half miles downhill. Um we actually dropped most of them in like the first mile. <laughs> um and then they were like, Oh, this is this is really difficult. You go back up really hard. <laughs> and we were like, Yeah, we know it's gonna be tough coming back uphill. Um so we had this one kid follow us two and a half miles downhill. And then we turned around and started running uphill and he kind of started struggling. Um. And all the other kids were like waiting higher up because <laughs> they knew better. <laughs> um, so we ran back up and some of the kids rejoined us, um, but you know, they, they don't really run. Some of them play soccer. And so they're not like the professional distance runners of Ethiopia. So mm-hmm. yeah, we were better runners and in better shape than them. Because,
1: but it sounds like you had their respect.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. They were, I think, blown away
1: <laughs> That's cool.
0: by these two foreigners who just show up and run all over the place. Um, so running in Ethiopia was really interesting because there's so many people there. Um, we did actually two days, or the next day from that shakeout run, we met a local guide who took us on this epic, almost 50-kilometer loop, through the Highlands, from Lalibela and it's definitely something that I could never repeat without a guide because I have no idea <laughs> where, where we went. actually yeah. went. But he was a local. so he showed us like all the local trails. and we climbed up to over twelve thousand feet. And there's still thousands of people that live up on these villages that have no road access. So they walk up and down the mountains every day. So you, understand where the um, ability of Ethiopian distance runners come from because they're they're born at high altitude they traverse this terrain mostly on foot every day since they're kids they are so nimble we followed um, so these trails are essentially like trading paths where people come down from the villages to sell stuff in the town or to buy stuff, and they travel back up. And so we ended up falling in step with a lot of these traders who were going home or going to do business. And there was like a man who must have been 50-ish, and he's just leaping over these rocky trails like a mountain goat and dropping us. (laughs) And he got really excited to run with us because we were going in the same direction. Yeah. And he um, told us like he has a son who's going to college in Addis. And you get the sense there that there's a lot of um, development happening in Ethiopia and that people are getting educated, that their sons and their daughters are raising their standards of living. So that was very cool to see in the highlands of Ethiopia.
1: Give me a couple other memorable um, moments. Can I, can I can I prompt you with one? Yeah, sure. Um, what just because like I to hear just because I know some of these stories. <laughs> um, you were in Japan for a while. Yeah. You joined a local running team there and did a five k time trial on the track. Tell yes. everyone about that experience. Um,
0: I knew going to Japan that I wanted to run a lot there and experience the running culture. And we were spending a few days in Tokyo, and so I just did a Google search, running clubs in Tokyo, um, thinking we could maybe meet up for a run with some people. And there's a great group in Tokyo that's been around for maybe 20 or 25 years. It's called um, Namba Rango. I probably butchered the name, but it's it was started by some expats who were avid runners. And so it's a running club in Tokyo and they have group runs twice a week. One is a track workout and one is a sort of distance run, usually actually outside the city. So we were going to be in town um, for one of their track nights. And so I reached out to the club coach with an email and I said, hey, I'm going to be in town. My husband and I would love to join you guys and check out the track and maybe run with you? And he said, yeah, sure. Come on down. You know, he actually met us at the Harijuku subway station, (laughs) which is an experience in and of itself. Um, And then we took the Tokyo subway to the track. And this is a, a regular Wednesday night in Tokyo. I've never seen a track so populated with runners of all abilities hundreds and hundreds of people out on the track. A lot of different groups, like ranging from you could tell, you know, super casual, like social running groups, to extremely serious distance runners, um, who, you know, train for these professional Ekiden teams. And there were also sprinters in addition to distance runners on the track. And the club was happened to have their a monthly 5K time trial that night. So Sean and I were like, yeah, sure, we'll run a 5K on the track. Um, It was so fun. One, because I hadn't actually run on a track in many months, probably eight months. And also just to be in the energy of running with so many other people. I think I took some videos and it's, it's really hard to explain how... Packed. This track was, but I ran a five k, and I probably spent eighty percent of my time in lane two, um, just because there were so many people on the track.
1: That's awesome. Uh, give me one more.
0: Um. Well, I th- had actually some very interesting run experiences in Africa. I knew I was. I said earlier that it was difficult to run on safari, but you can make it happen if you're stubborn enough. Um, The issue with running on safari is, of course, the wild animals. You can't just walk off by yourself in camp because...
1: You might be lion lunch.
0: um, The lions you can avoid for the most part by just going in the middle of the day. As long as you avoid dawn and dusk, they're not active in the middle of the day. So it's actually not predators they're worried about. It's more the herbivores can be more Uh, dangerous and unpredictable. So it's the elephants... It's the Cape buffalo, it's the hippos. You're not going to win those battles. Yeah, you are definitely not going to win (laughs) those battles. Um, And there have been instances where people have been injured by elephants or by hippos when they go out for a run on safari. So I think a lot of the camps are also just from a liability standpoint Mm -hmm. not willing to take the risk because they're unpredictable animals. Um, But at one camp... We were able to run because the guide um, would drive the safari car behind us. So we're at Jack's camp in Botswana, which is in the Kalahari Desert, which is a very arid place. So there's a couple factors that make running um, easier there. One is there's not a lot of vegetation, so you can see all around you. And there's a much lower wildlife density in the Kalahari Desert. Not too many predators or even herbivores around, and we could run out to the salt pans, which there are. There's literally nothing that lives on the salt pans, um, but you have to go in the middle of the day still. Um, so we went at 2 p.m., which is the hottest part of the day, and the guide has to follow you in a safari vehicle. So we did, I don't know, a, an eight-mile loop that was. Very hot, but we were excited because we hadn't been able to stretch our legs properly for quite a while up until then. And Greg, our guide, drove the big safari car, you know, 50 meters behind us, and he'd honk once for right, twice for left, (laughs) (laughs) because we didn't know where we were going. (laughs) So we did this loop. We come back to camp, and we're all, you know, high on endorphins and excited. And the other guide in the camp comes up to us and, and says, were you just running out towards the salt pan earlier? And we're like, yeah, that was us. It was so awesome. And he goes, did you know that you ran right by the alpha male lion? <laughs> <laughs> of course, we had no not. idea. And our guide didn't know either. And um, later on, we ended up driving out in the safari car the same direction that we had run and we found the alpha male lion who was sleeping behind a bush twenty meters from the side of the trail that we were running on. And oh, they're God. so well camouflaged that you had no idea. Have no idea. He definitely saw us and probably looked at us as we went by. But, it wasn't um, worth his
1: effort at that point. It he wasn't was enjoying worth his, his effort.
0: Nap. It was too hot. <laughs> we were too skinny. I don't know. <laughs> Not worth it. Yeah. But yeah, that was definitely a very sobering experience um, to know, okay, we really do have to be vigilant and very here. careful here.
1: Now we could spend a whole episode just talking about your trip and the different experiences that you were able to have um, While running around the world, but I want to talk more about you and your story and how you got into running. And let's just start with your name, um, which is really (laughs) unique, Io. And it's spelled in a unique way. It's capital Y, lowercase i, capital O, lowercase u. And now (laughs) if I see it like capital Y and then I o u in lowercase, it just looks weird to me. I've gotten (laughs) used to it. Um, And other people might see it for the first time, wondering how that's really unique. So tell me the story behind your name, its origins, and why it's spelled the way that it's spelled.
0: Yeah, so I was born in China, and my name is Chinese, it's Mandarin. Um, In Mandarin, it would be pronounced Wang, E-O. In Chinese, you use your family name first. And the language of Chinese is pictorial, so every word is a picture, a character, and there's a sort of westernized alphabet pronunciation um, spelling associated with every character called pinyin. And so in pinyin, you use the letters A through Z to write out how to pronounce each character. And my name, the characters E, O, the pinyin spelling for the first character E is YI, and the pinyin spelling for the second character O is OU. Um, So I was born in Shanghai and moved to the States with my family when I was five. Mm -hmm. And either my parents, or I don't remember if I had any input in it, decided that I would just keep my Chinese name and essentially directly use the pinyin spelling, Y-I-O-U. And because it's two characters, some people choose to keep the capitalization to... um, maintain the fact that it's a different character and sometimes you'll see things spelled out in pinyin where it's all lowercase and then if it's all lowercase it becomes difficult to differentiate where the word where the words start and end so a lot of times people that keep their pinyin spelling names as english names will use the capitalization to indicate that it's multiple characters uh, okay and my The characters of my name were also chosen by my parents to have meaning. So Wang is my family name. And then EO, so the E is part of the Chinese word for Italy, Itali. Because my dad, when I was born, he started a PhD program in Italy and actually moved away. And E, there's a lot of characters that have multiple meanings in Chinese. And E is also part of the word for um something to have meaning or to have purpose and o is part of the word for seagull and like to, the meaning is like to be you know, like a bird to be able to fly.
1: So you're an Italian seagull. I'm basically. an Italian
0: <laughs> seagull. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, that's super cool. I was. I've always been. I know a lot about you, obviously, but yeah. I, I'd never known that. Um, so I was really so curious.
0: Yeah, everyone who's Chinese and has a Chinese name, there's a meaning behind their mm-hmm. name, and because there's no real set names, like we don't have Christopher or sure. Jennifer or anything like that. Parents can choose. The names for their children based on the meanings of the characters and what they want to convey.
1: That's super cool. We're going to take a quick break so I can thank our sponsor for this episode. It is You Can. UCAN powders and bars with Superstarch give you slow-release carbs without the big crash. That's long-lasting energy without the sugar spikes, and it's easy on the stomach before you head out and run. I can personally vouch for UCAN as I've used the drink powder to fuel my last few marathons, including Boston just a couple months ago, and it has been an integral part of my pre-race nutrition plan. But don't just take my word for it. Top athletes like Meb, Dathan Ritzenhain, and members of the Zap Fitness Racing Team use it to fuel their training and racing as well. UCAN is ideal for any runner looking to fuel workouts and races without all the sugar of many other sports drinks. There's nothing out there quite like it. So, I'd recommend trying a UCAN sample pack for yourself. You'll get one packet of UCAN Superstarch drink mix, one packet of UCAN protein drink mix, and one UCAN snack bar, all for under 5 bucks, And that includes free shipping. Check it out today at generationucan.com slash shakeout. There is no the, just slash Morning Shakeout and see what you think. My thanks to UCAN for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Let's get back to the show. You mentioned that you moved here to the U.S. when you were five years old. Where did your family settle?
0: My family settled on the East Coast in Frederick, Maryland. So that's where I grew up. Um, My dad was a researcher for the National Cancer Institute over in Maryland And I grew up um, in Frederick and went to, you know, elementary, middle and high school there, learned English (laughs) by watching a lot of American television. Um, And then I went to college in Boston at MIT. And while there, I spectated the Boston Marathon as a freshman. And I had never done any sort of running in my life up until that point beyond being forced to do the mile in high school. And... Thinking that I almost failed PE because I couldn't run the mile.
1: <laughs> Which let me interject. Let me interject there. You, I mean, you don't fail at many things, but you definitely did not fail at academics. So I imagine that was probably a
0: PE a, a, was the hardest class for me in yeah. high school. It was definitely the hardest class for me. I was not very athletic.
1: Yeah, and you, and you feared that that might have brought down your perfect GPA. <laughs>
0: Well, luckily, they didn't grade based on athletic performance, but I was a good participator.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you play sports growing up?
0: Um, I did swim team for a while, um, but I kind of gave that up as more academics took over my life. So I was okay at swimming. I liked the consistency of it and sort of the discipline of it, but I wasn't a standout athlete by any means. Um and I definitely did not like running very much um by the time I went to college because I just had this association with being forced to do it as part
1: of it was a punishment. PE class. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um but when I was in college, I sort of wasn't part of any sports teams and felt like I needed to do something physically active. Um and so I started just running on my own. Um, I actually probably searched on the internet um, Is this before how you, to run. <laughs> is this before you
1: watched the Boston Marathon or after?
0: Um, this was after because okay. I decided I wanted to do the Boston Marathon. So that was
1: a spark that kind of lit the fire yes, for you. Yes,
0: absolutely. And then I had really no idea where to start. And so this was even... Probably pre Google, or maybe Google had just started out. But I definitely remember using like Ask Jeeves. Did
1: you graduate? <laughs> how from to M- run a marathon? <laughs> you graduated from <laughs> MIT in what? It was like two thousand two or so.
0: I entered MIT in two thousand three. In
1: two thousand three, yeah, so, yeah. So it was still like that's
0: it. Um, early dot com days. Yeah. Um, the wild, wild west days of the <laughs> of internet. internet. Um, there was a really great site I remember from New England called Cool Runnings. I don't know if it's
1: still Oh, it still around. exists. It's it still is still up-coming. the hub of race results for, oh, really? New, England, for, for <laughs> New England races only. Um, I
0: remember loving that website because I could go on there oh, yeah. and look up. I used a lot of training plans from Cool Runnings. Um, and then also looking up races. I think I did my first 5K which was a race that I found on Cool Runnings, and then I learned. Oh wait, you have to actually qualify for the Boston Marathon. So I ended up running. Um, the Cape Cod Marathon was my very first marathon.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I basically went straight from not running to running marathons.
1: Yeah, I want to. <laughs> I want to get into that here in a second. But just going back to your childhood and your upbringing, you weren't super involved in sports really outside of swimming. Did you like being outdoors and in, in nature at that time? We did
0: not spend a lot of time outdoors. We would do day hikes sometimes at the local park. But going to the outdoors was not a part of our family life. Okay. It was a lot of um, school.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, also, you know, my parents... They wanted me to be successful, which I'm very grateful for because they instilled a lot of goal setting and discipline Mm -hmm. in my life. And they wanted me to be also a well-rounded person and um, had me choose a musical instrument and basically said, if you're going to pursue something, you need to do it to the best of your ability. And so I practiced piano a lot Mm -hmm. and I actually got involved in doing um, a lot of things with music, which I'm super grateful for to have the the knowledge and the appreciation of that subject. Um, and then the other, I would say the major focus was, you know, be a good student, um, study, and be involved in different school clubs. So I was involved in a lot of clubs and Just other activities. Just not sports, right. um, because... Like it's it's a little bit of the Chinese parent culture. You know, sports are not that important in mm-hmm. the grand scheme of life. You need to work towards having a good career and um, being successful and especially being sort of the first generation that's in the States. In the
1: U.S., right.
0: Yeah, you know, you feel a lot of that desire to sort of achieve the American dream and move up and buy a house somewhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, and in your case, and just making your parents proud because they wanted all of these things for you. Yeah, because they
0: worked, Really, I mean, they've been through a lot in China. They lived through the Cultural Revolution. They saw a lot of hardship. They themselves worked extremely hard to give my sister and I the opportunity to live in the States Mm -hmm. and eventually become Americans and have a better education and a better, you know, situation in life.
1: Yeah. When did you become an American citizen?
0: We became naturalized in, I would say, about when I started high school, um, 1999. Okay. I The date is a little fuzzy because okay. I, I didn't know anything about the process except my parents had to... Um, passed the citizenship test, but because I was still under 18, once my parents were naturalized, all I had to do was sign some papers and take the oath. Got it. And that worked out very well for me. (laughs) So you were in
1: your your teens when you became naturalized as a U.S. citizen. And
0: my sister was born here, so she's always been a U.S. citizen.
1: Got it. Back to MIT Mm and college and your pursuits at that time, Academically, what were your interests and did you have any career ambitions at that point?
0: Uh, My interests were chemistry and specifically biochemistry. I think part of that was being around my parents and their friends who were all in the research and medical fields. Um, My dad was also a physician before he was a scientist. And so I just knew a lot about scientific research and I was interested in the sciences and so I studied chemistry and I was especially passionate about biochemistry and I worked in a few labs at MIT um, doing different kinds of biomedical research and so I thought, hey, I would just go into biotech Um, and I did some internships with biotech companies in the Cambridge area which is a big hotbed for biotech Um, and I thought that I would just work in biotech afterwards. I knew I did not want to go into academia. (laughs) Um, And I thought that I would just work in the industry.
1: That's pretty funny looking back (laughs) based on where you ended up. And we'll get to that here in a bit. But you left off earlier with Cape Cod Marathon. You signed Mm -hmm. up, you're inspired after Boston, you found these training plans on CoolRunning.com. You know, I gotta qualify for this race, <laughs> so I got to run this marathon first. So, take me to that first marathon in Cape Cod. Um, How'd it go?
0: I'd say that it went well. It was definitely a type two fun experience um, because the first 18 miles were fine, but the course was a lot hillier than I was prepared for. Um, those of you that know, The Cambridge, Boston area, there's not many hills to run on there. so.
1: No, you're running along the river most days. Yeah, i
0: done all of my training along the river um, and I was not prepared for the hills in Cape Cod and so my quads were trashed by mile 20 and I would say the last 10K was a big struggle fest. There was some walking involved, maybe a lot of walking involved, but I think I had banked enough time in the first 20 miles that I was able to um, slide under the qualification standard. So I think that first marathon I finished in three hours and 33 minutes and it will always be the longest 10K of my life, that last 10K. (laughs) k.
1: little coaching interjection here. For those of you listening at home, banking time in the first 20 miles of a marathon is not a suggested strategy for success, (laughs) though you can get away from it uh, from time to time, as EO did in in this case. So you qualified for Boston. Um, I know Cape Cod is in October, so it's probably too late to qualify for the next year's race. When did you run your first Boston Marathon?
0: I ran my first Boston Marathon 2005, must have been. Okay. Um... I think I actually was able to sign up for the very next Boston Marathon.
1: Really? Okay, It was back
0: in the day before it was too crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, nowadays you have to well, sign up so early. Well, I think it's Boston. like
1: September 12th is, is yeah, the sign up. Yeah, I, I if, think
0: I signed up in November Okay. Um, when I did it.
1: <laughs> Man, how times have changed in, in such a short period. I, know.
0: <laughs> I mean, marathoning has really boomed um, yeah. in the past 10 years.
1: Especially Boston.
0: Yeah, so I did... Boston 2005. It was incredible. I think I, my goal going into it was just to lower my PR, right. try to run a little bit faster. Um, I think I ran in the 315 range okay. for that Boston Marathon. I loved it. The last 10K went much better <laughs> because I did some actual running on the course and
1: knew what you were in for.
0: I knew that I had to do some hills. <laughs> so I would go to, um, what's that hill, like Beacon Hill, is relatively accessible from where I was living. Mm-hmm. And so I would just run up and down that one little hill a few times as my hill training. Um, and so after that Boston Marathon, I thought, hmm, this is really interesting. I want to run more and see if I can just get a little bit faster. It very much appealed to me, the the process of distance running, where if you put in the work, then it's likely that you'll see you improvement. Results, sure. It's sort of a direct reflection of how much dedication you're willing to put into it.
1: Yeah, And you were still figuring all of this out on your own at the time, right? Just following these online programs yes. and piecing <laughs> things together?
0: Yes, following a lot of just online training plans. Um, I didn't have a coach at the time. Um, my main goal was just training for the next Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. Um I did eventually start thinking, hey, I should probably get a little bit more serious and meet other runners and learn more because I was doing a lot of running by myself. Mm -hmm. So I... um,
1: Had you met Sean at the time? No. Okay.
0: This was still several years before I met Sean. -Sean. Okay. So I looked into local running clubs and joined up with the Cambridge Running Club, Mm -hmm. which was a really cool group of local people and they fielded racing teams, but it wasn't like elite level, so I didn't feel intimidated to join them. And it right. was very social experience as well. And so through joining that club, I started doing track workouts um, and doing... Different types of runs, like learning what tempo runs are and what fartleks are, and how to actually build a base, and then you know what does strength mean when it pertains to running? What is speed work? I knew nothing about that, <laughs> um, and I you know saw really good progress with my marathon times going down, and so eventually got. To the point where it's like maybe I can break three hours for the mm-hmm. marathon.
1: Yeah, and, you were still just whittling away at that point. It yeah, wasn't like you jumped from like this three thirty no, ish time to like we'll get into like yeah I, two thirty ish time. No, eventually, no, but. I
0: started at three thirty ish, got into the three, three teen. teens, and then got below three ten, and then you know the natural next barrier is it's three hours, breaking three hours. And I remember I ran. New York Marathon, and I ran like three zero zero twenty or something so close <laughs> so close and um after running New York, I was back in Boston and had signed up for the next Boston marathon two thousand and eight I believe, and it was during that winter that I met my husband Sean. We were in a coffee shop together and he had done some very exciting research in his lab the night before and had some scanning electron micrographs on his laptop that he was showing the barista and appa- None of the surprises <laughs> me, by the way. <laughs> and apparently I looked interested, so he brought his laptop over and told me what his research was on, and we just started talking. And then I noticed that he was wearing Asics running shoes and had like a garment on his wrist. So I said, hey, are you a runner? And he said, yeah, I'm training for Boston. And I said, I'm training for Boston, we should run together. <laughs> so that's how it all started. We went for a run, I think two days later.
1: Who beat who at that next Boston?
0: (laughs) Um, I think we both had kind of rough days because our training was not ideal that winter um, because we got a little distracted.
1: Was that 08, (laughs) Boston 2008? Yeah, I ran it that year. It was hot, it was warm. Yeah, it was a tough
0: race. Yeah, um, I totally bonked. I think I I, that was my one blip in the marathon times progression. (laughs) I think I ran like 320. I think actually we ran in together because we were both having horrible days. Um, but then we that's how we got to know each other was through running, and so we have been running together ever since.
1: So, I mean, you're story about getting into running is not atypical for a lot of runners who didn't come from like a cross mm-hmm. country and track background. I mean, you got into marathons and sort of just went from marathon to marathon for a while and maybe yeah. ran a half, like, you know, sort of in the buildups and, and dabbled in the, the club thing and learned how to do workouts. When was the first big, like real big breakthrough for you? Maybe when you broke three hours uh, or even beyond that?
0: Um, I felt a big breakthrough when I broke three hours. This was after Sean and I moved to California and I signed up for the Napa Marathon um, and I ran like 253 there. And I thought, wow, that one felt really good and I feel like I have more potential for improvement. Um, So after that marathon, I decided to get a coach. So I started working with Mark McManus for a few years because I wanted to then look towards the next goal, which at the time was the Olympic trials qualifying standard um, 246. And so we started working together to try and make a qualifier for the 2012 trials. Mm -hmm. And... That's when things started getting more serious. Yeah. <laughs> it was like three by three mile repeats. Oh. that sounds really hard.
1: <laughs> did Did that trial's goal excite you in the same way that um, Boston did years prior?
0: It did excite me. I think I was very motivated by it mm-hmm. and willing to put in, you know, the time and effort to try and achieve that. Um, and I ran I tried to do it at Napa again, and I actually ran two forty six forty. So again, I came like 40 seconds away.
1: Super close. You could taste it, but not
0: quite. I there. know, not quite. It was a very stormy year. I think actually Magda was there, but she only ran maybe the first 20 miles. It was like a tempo run going into her trials. Um, and so I was running by myself and just missed out by 40 seconds on um, that time. And I think I felt... One, really happy that, hey, look, I put in the work and I lowered my marathon time by seven minutes. Yeah. But it was also very disappointing because I didn't make my goal and it was so close. Um, and so then we decided to just turn around and run Grandma's Marathon a few months later.
1: Right. Because Napa's I, in April for, or March yeah. really.
0: Um, Napa's was in March sad. and yeah. then Grandma's is in June. June, right. Um, because I felt like. I could have definitely run faster with better conditions. Mm-hmm. And so I went out to grandma's in June and actually really surprised myself and ran um 238 there.
1: So another huge chunk of time yeah. <laughs> off of what was already a huge chunk of time.
0: Yeah, so th- that made me feel really, really happy that I could make the goal and also surprise myself by not only making the B standard, but also coming under the A standard, which mm-hmm. meant that you know, I could have um, support to, to actually go to the trials. trials. right? And at the time, I thought, yeah, I'll just continue marathoning because who knows
1: where this could go. Where this
0: could go. Um, it turns out being a professional marathoner is really hard. <laughs> yeah,
1: not a not an easy profession on a number of no, levels. No, I mean,
0: there's a lot of th- things that you have to do outside of the actual running part. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always life stress and injuries and all these things that come into play that sort of can derail um, the best laid plans. And so going into the 2012 trials, I developed um, a very common overtraining injury, high hamstring tendinopathy. And I really was not able to run properly for a few months. And But I went to the trials and I was like, I'll start And I actually DNF'd the trials because of my hamstring. Um, And so it took me some time to try and get over that injury. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I stayed in sort of the road running circuit for a while. Um, But I think at that point, marathoning got a little boring for me. Sure, I felt like I'd achieved this big goal and sort of the the thing was, well, what's next? What's challenging? What's interesting? What intrigues me to get after? And it really wasn't marathons yeah. anymore.
1: <laughs> Let's hit pause there for a second. I want to go back to grandmas because that mm-hmm. was such a huge breakthrough off of what we had said. It was already a huge breakthrough at Napa just a couple months prior. So as you're running grandmas and you're clicking off these splits, which are way faster than anything you've ever clicked off, before, were you just like, uh, "This might not end well," or I'm just gonna like, I feel good, I'm gonna see what happens. Like, yeah. just take me, take me back to that race and what you were feeling so at the time.
0: Grandma's is a great course. Um, I think I seem to like point to point courses. I've run a lot of point to point course marathons, Boston being one of them, and Nap is also a point to point course. You feel like you just get into a flow of, hey, I'm going over there. Because with grandmas especially, you run along the lake and you can literally see the finish line from a pretty far ways away. Um, And I honestly was not even paying that much attention to my splits at the time. I was sort of just clicking off miles. And there was a pace group but I think I separated from the pace group pretty early on and I ended up falling into step with two other runners, one of whom is Chris <laughs> Who
1: we came to know years later.
0: <laughs> Who also lives in the Bay Area now, now and runs right. trails. Um, and the three of us had just a great um, group going and I sort of was just like, oh, I'll stay with these guys and... It was really fun. We would help each other um, along the way, and I think I just got into this groove. And like I was saying earlier, didn't even look at my splits. I was just following Kristinucci <laughs> for twenty miles.
1: <laughs> Who he is a very patient pacer, by the way. Um, good guy to follow. Yeah, he in ran that situation. very even <laughs>
0: splits. And actually we clicked off some pretty fast miles. He ended up finishing maybe a a minute or two ahead of me because he had a little bit more at the end. So the course is rolling, Mm -hmm. which I also liked because you work different muscle groups and you sort of have these little uphills but then you have beautiful sweeping downhills where you feel you get uh, a lot of momentum. And leading into the city, the last few miles are very flat. Um, And so I think I definitely ran sub six minute miles for the last 10K um, and I crossed the finish line and I almost couldn't believe what the time was because I had no idea that I was going so fast. And I think that was a good thing because maybe I would have overthought it if I knew how far ahead of my planned splits I was.
1: Right. Sometimes you just have to give yourself a chance and not yeah. overthink it.
0: Or you just go by feel, feel. and say, I right. still feel pretty good. I can maintain this. Right. Um, and you'll surprise yourself.
1: Where does your competitiveness come from? Mm. <laughs> and I don't even necessarily <laughs> mean with other people. You're obviously very competitive with yourself.
0: Yeah. I think it's just, I've always felt an inner drive to do the best. I can, and maximize my potential. And even more so now, having traveled so much and seen so much of the world, where we live, what I'm doing right now, it's a great privilege to be able to run not out of pure necessity. Um, and I just want to maximize that opportunity and to maximize my own Um, potential because I think I'm passionate about this. I have some talent at it. I can do pretty well and I owe it to myself really to try and do the best that I can.
1: I love that. I think that's a great takeaway for a lot of my listeners. How much more time do we have? I know you've got to get on a plane in a few hours.
0: No, I don't have to leave till 1.30. Okay, so we got time. Let's keep
1: going then. Um, so there's a lot more ground here to cover. We got through the 2012 trials, which mm-hmm. you weren't able to finish because of a high hamstring injury. And I mean, for the most part, I mean, not that that was the end of your marathoning career, but um, you did sort of put it on hold at that time, yeah. hit pause a bit. Let's talk about trail and ultra running and mm-hmm. when that spark ignited okay. for you.
0: I would say my very first proper trail run was in Marin. This is
1: a good story, yeah.
0: Um, Sean grew up in Mill Valley. So a little, like a year after we'd met, um, I visited his parents with him over Thanksgiving in Mill Valley. And he said, hey, I want to take you on all these amazing trail runs that I used to go on as a kid. And the first thing that we're going to do is do my favorite long run from my house in Mill Valley. And it's going to be a little hilly, but it's going to be beautiful and you'll love it. Yeah, it was the double Dipsy.
1: (laughs) For those of you who have never been to Marin County, California, or have any idea what the Dipsy Trail is, it is, well, the Dipsy Race is the oldest trail Mm -hmm. race in the world. Um, The trail itself runs seven miles from Mill Valley, downtown Mill Valley, California, all the way out to Stinson Beach, uh, the Pacific Ocean. It's seven-ish miles, point to point, uh, it climbs about twenty two hundred feet uh, in the first three and a half ish <laughs> miles, and then you descend just as much down to the ocean. And it's rudy, it's rugged, it's yes. single track, um, it's under redwoods. It is there is beautiful scenery, yeah. but it is not just your casual it's, stroll to the Yeah, ocean.
0: it's a tough trail, yeah. and there's a lot of stairs involved, that both too, going yeah. up and down, and a double dipsey is to run it from Mill Valley. To Stinson and and back back to Mill Valley, and uh, you know, going back to what I discussed prior, I'd been running around the river in Boston, which is has zero elevation gain. (laughs) Um, But you know, I was up for it. First of all, because I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, So we ran from his parents' house, which was a mile and a half away from where the Dipsy Trail starts. And then we get to downtown Mill Valley and it's all good up until then. And then we start going up these stairs. And that was the first inkling that I had of, wow, this is going to be a tough run. Um, So we went up and over the first hill, which was okay. And then we had the biggest climb of the Dipsy Um, up to what's called cardiac, and it's called cardiac because you might go into cardiac arrest going up that hill. Um, And then we descended down into Stinson, and I was done at that
1: point. (laughs) I know that feeling.
0: Um, Also, we had no water with us and no food and nothing. I mean, it was so, so... Newbie.
1: <laughs> You've been dating this guy for a year. He takes you on his favorite trail run and you're probably ready to kill him at this point.
0: And the, the thing was, he Sean had to get back at a certain time for a dentist appointment. So he actually left me on the Dipsy to make my own way back to Mill Valley because he had to keep running to make it back home in time for his dentist appointment. So I'm like trudging up the hill trying to get back um, to a place Where I'd never been before, before, um, feeling extremely sorry for myself, and my quads are just done at this point. Um, And it was like a survival experience.
1: (laughs) And you obviously loved it because you've stuck with this. Well, I think that that was
0: when I first found. Hey, this is a real challenge, Challenge, Um, and it's beautiful, and I'm out in nature, and there's something. Extremely fulfilling about having conquered this this experience. Um, And we went on to run many more Double Dipsies in a much more pleasant fashion Mm. after that. Um, And I think after moving uh, officially to Mill Valley in 2008, like Mm. late 2008. I started running a lot on trails, even while doing the marathon training, running, and I yeah. think it was just sort of a gradual and natural transition to, hey, maybe I can race on trails instead of just doing my training on the trails.
1: Yeah, once you had become, I mean, for all more purposes, confident. Fried, well, more confident, <laughs> but fried, a little fried on marathoning, yeah. and just looking for that looking for that next challenge. What was your first official trail race?
0: I think it. Well, I did some of the cross country races mm-hmm. in Golden Gate Park and around the Bay Area. That the you know so that was a new thing for you Pacific at the time because
1: you didn't do yeah, that. Yeah, those were my up. first cross country ah, races. True. Okay. I did them as
0: an adult. I yeah. was like, this is so fun! <laughs> <laughs> running through a golf course is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I th- I would say my first running on non pavement would be through the um, PA cross country circuit. And I did, you know, cl- club cross country nationals and those sorts of events.
1: It's like five k, six k distance. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I enjoyed it a lot because I found that I was, st- I could be very strong on the hills and beat people that I would not be able to beat on a normal flat five k course. Um, and I started running more with other local trail runners who were competitive in Marin. And I think actually my first official trail race was the Dipsy, um, and I have a terrible memory with dates, so I will not be able to tell you off the top of my head which year I ran the Dipsy. But I'm sure you could find it in the records. <laughs> Maybe it was twenty, um, twenty eleven, or twenty ten. Okay. I've only done the Dipsy once, and is that enough for you? I would say it was enough for me. It's an um, incredible event. I love it. I love that it brings so much attention to trails and to Mill Valley and Marin. It's just not my scene.
1: <laughs> I don't think I'll ever do it. I'm, I'm scared shitless of it. Oh.
0: Um, I think part of it is the whole handicapped yeah. um, aspect. Not that I don't like the idea. I think it's an interesting idea. I think it just makes the congestion um in the first parts of the trail very difficult to deal with yeah. and also I don't enjoy racing downstairs very much and the second half of the race is all racing down crazy stairs and shortcuts and
1: while you're trying to pass a thousand yeah, thousand of your closest while friends while you're
0: trying to pass people who are in the latter stages of a race and mm-hmm. not very in in it yeah.
1: or hospitable
0: <laughs> yeah or no, no. <laughs> you know we're all intense at the end of mm-hmm. a race but having to pass people on very narrow slick steep stairs is um i think a little bit too adrenaline inducing for me
1: yeah when did the idea to sign up for an ultra come into the picture?
0: Um, I think it came into the picture around 2014. Um, I had actually a gnarly ankle injury in 2013 and had surgery and so was definitely out of running for almost a full year, just rehabbing from that. And as I was coming back, I needed to sort of think about, okay, where do I go from here with the running? And being in Marin, we have a lot of trail running and trail races going on, and I wanted to do an ultra, so I signed up for 50K over in the East Bay called Skyline, and that was my first 50K. And I really tried to be smart going into it, but mostly ran on feel because I had no idea how it would feel or what would happen. And it went Better than I thought it would, actually. Um, I think I ran three, just over three hours um, for that 50K. And maybe.
1: No, maybe just under four hours.
0: Just under four hours. I don't even remember. I have a terrible memory for numbers like that. Um, And I enjoyed it very much. Um, and so I thought, hey, let's try to do some more ultras. Mm-hmm. And there's way too cool. And the North Face 50 mile is obviously a very local race that gets a big turnout and is, you know, quote unquote, huge deal in the trail world.
1: And you had success <laughs> in your first ultra at Skyline. You, I think you won. You ran fast.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but it wasn't... That didn't continue right away. You had a couple bumps in the road right after that race. Tell me about this.
0: Um, I've DNF'd North Face um, that year because I, again... 50 mile. Yeah, the North Face 50 mile. I think I did 25 miles of it because um, my hamstring had come back to bother me. So I have dealt with these chronic issues, I think, from... Uh, training really hard (laughs) on road racing and marathons. So I've dealt with a chronic right hamstring that was tendinopathy and still bothers me sometimes when I'm doing a lot of speed work. Um, And that time in the North Face 50, just the training leading up to it, I wasn't doing enough prehab or rehab exercises and My hamstring got really tight, and it turned into not a full-blown tendinopathy, but definitely a tendonitis of some kind. And so, I wasn't able to finish that North Face. And then um, I DNF my first time at Lake Sonoma because I rolled my ankle. Um, So I've had. I think Megan Hicks wrote something once about I need to be put in like a big hamster ball, (laughs) (laughs) so I can finally show up at races healthy. (laughs) And you know, mentally, I think I've had to do a lot of work into overcoming the fear of injury because I've had so many injuries in the past, and I'm not the world's most um, elegant or fast uh, downhiller, especially when it comes to technical ter- terrain. Um, I still deal with a lot of. Fear and anxiety about, you know, getting hurt. Um, I just sprained my ankle again last month in Italy. So it's clearly a weakness of mine. Mm -hmm. And, but I wanted to take those experiences as opportunities for improvement because it's a weakness, but you know what? You can always work on your weaknesses and get them stronger And and learn from those experiences. And learn from them. And also, it's very satisfying for me to go back to something that I failed at and make it a success.
1: We're going to talk more about that in a bit, some very specific instances. Uh, But you were self-coached at the time. You were just doing your own thing. Um, Sometime after that, you reached out to me for coaching. And I don't want to shine the spotlight on myself here, but talk about that decision to start working with a coach again.
0: I felt like I just needed... One, some guidance because, again, I felt like I was kind of back at square zero, like how do I prepare properly for a trail race? And then I started looking around for who was coaching in the trail space and I wanted somebody relatively local because I like to have more than just online exchanges Um because I feel that, one, the person that I work with, I should also be able to run with. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not a, a requirement, obviously, for coaches. But I think I just felt more comfortable if I could say, hey, let's go for a run. And then you can see how I run.
1: On, on the coaching side, the coach is thinking, I hope I don't get dropped. <laughs> Trail run. I thought that, more, that more, on more than one occasion.
0: Um, and I... Found Mario. Well, I met Mario. I think we met at SFRC, right? Right. Yeah. And I knew that he did a lot of writing in the running space. So I knew that he was an extremely knowledgeable person about all things running. One. And then I found out he also did coaching. And looking at some of the other athletes that he worked with, I saw that they are successful in a broad range of events. So that's something that I'm still interested in is not just trail running, but I also want to maintain my speed on the roads. I love road half marathons, for example. Um, And maybe I will want to run a road marathon again someday. So I also wanted someone who could coach a wide variety of events. And I thought that by... Just the way that Mario approached the the science of running too was very interesting. Like he clearly reads the literature out there. hes keeps himself up to date on all the latest information. So Mario's awesome.
1: <laughs> what were some of the changes that this Mario guy implemented in your program when you started working um, together?
0: structure. <laughs> and um I couldn't just go out and hammer every SFRC run anymore. I actually had to follow a plan and have easy days. <laughs> and
1: I think I think there were a lot of d- d- asterisks. Do not run at the front <laughs> this Saturday.
0: Yeah, I think I learned from Mario that um you should one have specificity, so he would write in, you know, Today's run is working on downhills, like these intervals should be done on more technical terrain or this interval should be done at a certain grade to replicate the situation that you're going to face in a race. So um, I think learning that training specificity plays a big role, especially in trail running, because the terrain and the conditions can be so different race to race. If you're not prepared for it, then you have potential to really suffer. Um, and also having somebody to be accountable for. I mean, I'm pretty accountable to myself, but it's also easy for me to say, oh, you know, I'll just run whatever today. Or if somebody asks me to do a certain run, my original plan will just go out the window because I can just say yes to that person. But if I say, oh, that's not on the plan, then I make a better choice when I'm accountable to somebody else. And also... Um, having Mario have a bigger picture plan um I can plan the day to day, but having you know the sixteen week plan or the several month outlook that was very, very helpful for me to have
1: or the or at this juncture the the three to five year plan of <laughs> Doing some of these longer races or possibly returning to marathons and, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So that first year that we were working together, you had some success. Um initially. I mean, you were second at Way Too Cool, you're in a big PR in the fifty K. Uh, and then you went back to Lake Sonoma a race that you had DNF'd at previously. You still hadn't had a fifty mile finish under your belt. Just talk a little bit about what you were you know, what you were focusing on going into that go of Lake Sonoma?
0: So that would be Lake Sonoma 2016. Um, Going into it, I wanted to finish. (laughs) I wanted to stay healthy through the training um, leading up to it. And I think having you, Mario, to talk to about how I actually felt in the training, to have like... A plan of hard days and easy days, and not just go out and crush myself all the time, um, very much helped me get to the starting line healthy. And also learning more about how to fuel um, because I'm a very, I was a very bad fueler. I would take you know two gels with me on a three or four hour run and just suffer through. And you can sort of get away with that. Up until three hours. But then um in the fifty mile, you can't get away with that for seven hours.
1: <laughs> no, there's no there's no faking it at that point. For those of you listening, two things EO does not like to do fuel on the run and hike. <laughs> we may or may not get into that. Anyway, back to back to Sonoma.
0: Um so I wanted to first of all finish like Sonoma. That was I would say the main goal going into 2016. that was a big deal at the time. That was a huge deal because I'd never finished a 50 mile and it was sort of like after the 50K point, it's unknown territory. And so I think for that particular Lake Sonoma, I tried to focus intensely on just the small things that I was in control of in the moment of the race. So fueling, hydration, staying on my feet, and not focused on the time at all. Um, And just to keep asking myself how I felt and whether I was, you know, ticking off all of the things that I needed to tick off. And it worked because I had a great race and I felt as good as one can feel at the end of a 50 mile. <laughs> and I did do some hiking at the end of that 50 mile.
1: <laughs> when you took the lead in that race, and you still had a long way to go mm-hmm. when you took the lead, what was your mindset like at that point? Um, knowing that just finishing was going to be a big goal, but now you're in the lead and you're like, yeah. knowing you, I don't want to give that up at this point.
0: I think I took the lead around mile 29 and I knew I still had a long ways to go, but I also knew that I was still feeling pretty good at that point and that I had run smart and very much within myself and that, one, I would definitely finish, barring any extreme disaster, (laughs) and that I had done a good job of pacing up until that point. And the Lake Sonoma course, the second half is just really tough because it's relentlessly undulating. I think it was Tim Tolofsen that said, Death by a thousand cuts. Death by
1: a thousand cuts. Um,
0: yeah. It's never flat. And you also weave in and out of this, um, of the side of the lake. So you never can see too far ahead of you. So it just, and, and a lot of the last, I would say the last four and a half miles looks very similar. And so it feels endless. And you feel and you are going very slow because you're constantly turning. There's a lot of going down these little creek canyons and having to climb quite steeply back up out of them. So it was a grind for the last four miles. But I think after the last aid station, when I heard that I was still several minutes ahead, um, I knew I was going to finish and I knew that I could win as long as I just kept moving forward.
1: <laughs> so, to give some context to this whole situation when we were talking about EO's racing schedule for that spring, it ended at Lake Sonoma. Um, <laughs> you know, you ran a half marathon in February here in San Francisco, then you ran Way Too Cool, and then you ran Lake Sonoma. And that was like that was it for spring. We were like, yeah. that's going to be, you know, a big deal if one you finish Lake Sonoma cuz you hadn't finished 50 mile at that point. Um and we knew you'd you know, just because you are a competitive person by nature that you were going to throw yourself in and be competitive. But we didn't talk beyond that of yeah. like, oh, if you do finish top two and you get this thing <laughs> called the golden ticket, um, yeah, that would then qualify you you get a little for, email no. about
0: signing up for Western <laughs> States and having two weeks to decide. And that year, actually, I left for Tahiti right after Lake Sonoma and I was in Tahiti trying to decide whether or not I would do Lake Sonoma or um, Western States. Um, I think deep down, I always knew that I wanted to do it because it's Western States. I mean, I don't need to say anything more about how what the history and, and the atmosphere around that race. Um, but I'd never done 100 miles. It was twice the furthest distance I'd ever run um, my husband thought I was insane already, and if I wanted to do Western, he was like, I don't know about that. Um, but I decided to do it, yeah. because you never know when you'll have that opportunity again.
1: Yeah, so we did a short ramp up, mm-hmm. relatively short ramp mm-hmm. up to, to Western States since we hadn't been building up to it um, at that point, and it was hot year as it usually is, um, you Went in it without, I mean, you just finished your first 50 mile a couple months prior, but you went in and, you know, gave yourself a shot and you were competitive. Talk about your first 100 mile experience. What was memorable about it for good reasons and what left a sour taste in your mouth?
0: I think learning about how differently one has to approach running 100 miles, not even racing, but just making it through 100 miles, it's a totally different beast than even a 50 mile. Um, Because a 50 mile you can still run for most of that. A 100 mile, depending on the terrain, you have to be much more judicious with your effort level and what your legs are capable of. So I had to learn about this thing called power hiking. Um, which I I dislike hiking very much, <laughs> less so now because I've done a lot more of it um, in recent years. Um, You've
1: learned to see its value. I've
0: learned to see its value for sure. Um, and also how important nutrition and hydration becomes in 100 miles because you really pay for your early mistakes if you don't hydrate early and fuel early. And that was one of the things I did quite poorly in my first Western States was I got too wrapped up in the running and the racing aspect of it from the get-go and you really can't. Um,
1: You spent a bit of time at the Forest Forest Hill aid station.
0: (laughs) Well, I cramped um, going down the first canyon um, and... I I think, one, I hadn't prepared enough for the heat and also I hadn't prepared enough for just the terrain of the canyons. Um, I actually cramped on the downhills Mm -hmm. um, and had to walk. Um, I walked into Forest Hill and definitely laid on the ground for a while. (laughs) Um, but my crew were wonderful and got me motivated and brought me all these different things to try and I did stand up and leave Forest Hill and finish that year in a time that, well, I I made the goal of going under 24 hours. I think after Forest Hill, that was just really my goal was to finish and to finish under 24 hours Um, and it was... A very painful experience.
1: (laughs) So back to one of the things that you had touched on earlier, you mentioned how when you fail at something or come up short, that just motivates you even more to go back and master it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you went back the next year. Won't ruin the surprise for people, but... (laughs) We didn't exactly I don't master. F- we, we, surprise! No, um, we didn't I think master. We didn't think, master it the next year. I think year. I
0: mastered it farther this time. You did master farther. I mean, it farther. the first year I feel like okay, I mastered like the first 50k, and then um, 2017, I feel like I mastered the 100K first 100 first hundred up until <laughs> fourth tilt.
1: So we're two thirds of the way there. We, we've got. No, <laughs> I, know, that I last, just need one more year. We've got that last um, third. How motivated are you to go back at some point? Oh, very.
0: I mean, I want to do a golden ticket race in the spring and. Try to get back into Western states for twenty nineteen. Um, I do want to master it. I mean, I don't know if I, it'll be like Ian Sharman style where I just want to do it ten years in a row, but I definitely want to say that I feel I personally feel like I had a good race at Western states, regardless of, of it. where I finish in the results, I just want to feel personally like I put together and executed a good race,
1: yeah. We'll wrap up here in a few minutes, switching gears a little bit. Are you, like, when you step kind of outside of yourself for a little bit and you look at where you are now as an athlete? You're sponsored by Under Armour, Camelback, you work with other companies. um, You know, at this point, because of the trip, you're not going back to teaching this year. You're going to take some time to just focus on, you know, your athletic. Pursuits and seeing where you can take that. Is that like mind-blowing to you when you really think about it? That here you are in your early 30s, and <laughs> for all intents and purposes, you're a you're a sponsored professional athlete?
0: It is mind-blowing. Um, I never thought that I would end up in this situation. It's so fun. And I think I'm extremely grateful for all the people that I've met along the way who've made it possible, and also grateful that I've found wonderful sponsors um, and I feel like you just never know where your life can lead and if you're passionate about something, you should just give your best and do your best. I mean I never went into running thinking that I would I was going to be a professional runner someday. I just went into it wanting to be the best that I personally could possibly be. And eventually it led to the point where I was approached by sponsors. And I just feel fortunate every day that I can do something that I love. And I also never thought that I would have the opportunity to travel around the world for a year. Um, And I think that if you maintain good relationships with people, if you act in a way that is helpful to others, that is kind, that is giving, that you just hold yourself to a high standard, then opportunities will appear before you and say yes. (laughs) Um, I think I'm very happy that... I'm here and not working in the biotech industry <laughs> because this is far more interesting and stimulating and varied. And I think I've always been a person that has liked to do a little bit of everything. And so now I'm still tutoring. I'm still having to brush up on my calculus and my science. I'm you know, working with different companies on I think a broader range of projects. Now that I've seen a lot of the big problems facing the world i think i'm more passionate about using running and whatever publicity or visibility it brings to improve the world in a lot of different ways so i think now i'm interested in not just training and racing but also how can that translate to solving much bigger problems that the whole world is facing
1: yeah i love that i think that's a i think that's a great way to Think about you know how your running can be, as you talked about earlier. It is a very personal pursuit, and it can be a very selfish endeavor. But you can also you know it can manifest itself in very unselfish mm-hmm. ways if you're deliberate about yeah.
0: that. Yeah. Well, what I found, especially while traveling, is running is a great way to meet people and to start an initial connection or a relationship with a people or a community, and through that. You can then tackle a whole range of other topics mm-hmm. and other opportunities,
1: yeah, I was telling you earlier how I met this gentleman Mauricio Diaz, mm-hmm. um, who's going to be on the podcast. I'm not sure if that episode will come out before or after this one, but he does he travels a lot and he hosts these running retreats, and he says running is the it's the common denominator yeah. Um, you know, regardless of whether he's in Mexico or whether he's here or whether he's somewhere else and and I think you know what you just said is exemplifies that um is that it can be that foundation um that supports all of us, which I think is a super cool thing um you and I like to on our on our runs uh when I'm not just sucking air behind you, trying to keep up, we talk a lot about what's going on you know in the sport of running and who's mm-hmm. you know kind of who's doing what and you know what's exciting us or or on our minds. So for all my listeners, what as a fan of the sport and as someone who is involved in it, what's exciting you in running right now?
0: Hmm. I think what's exciting me, well I'm always excited to see new faces enter running. Um I think something that's exciting me recently is trying to bridge the divide between urban runners and trail runners. And having been at the recent Under Armour event in Copper Mountain where um, a lot of these urban run crews came out to experience the trails uh, made me realize like how non-diverse trail running actually sure. still is. And even being at OR, you look around and see the representation of the people in the outdoor industry. It's not very diverse. A bunch of plaid
1: shirted white guys with beards and trucker hats. Yes, I
0: can't tell anyone apart actually. (laughs) 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 Um, So I think what excites me are um, movements to bring more diversity into trail running and to bring more urban populations into trail running Mm -hmm. because One of the major issues that we're going to be facing is protection of wild spaces and public lands. And part of um, preserving those spaces is making people aware that they have those spaces in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like There are people that have lived in urban places their whole lives and have never been to a national park or even to their local state park. So I think bringing... A more diverse population into the outdoors and into trail running is going to be both really important, and I think inject a new level of energy. I mean, if you've ever seen a run crew out cheering for their crowd on a trail run, they are so into it Mm -hmm. and so excited, and it brings such positive energy into the into. event.
1: Yeah. I love that. That's a, that's one of the greatest answers that I've heard so far. And I think it can work both ways too. I think a lot of us who, you know, are attracted to the trails and spend a lot of our time there, which is, which is great. As you said, we should, because that's how we're going to be able to preserve them and prolong them. Um, but also going the other way and coming into the cities and getting in with some of these urban run crews Mm -hmm. and making a difference like, you know, in, in an urban area and bringing running to more people, even if the that's what they have that's accessible to them. Like just getting them out there and being like, Hey, take advantage of your of your parks and your pathways um mm-hmm. and your community. Um, because back to running as a common denominator, that's what thing that we all share and I think can can bring us all together in a positive way.
0: Absolutely, because we need more positivity and togetherness these days. <laughs> we certainly do.
1: Well, I will let you go so that you can pack for your next <laughs> next couple adventures since you're going to be on, what, four flights here in the next three days? Uh, Something like that?
0: Three. Three in the yeah. next three days,
1: yeah. one of them being international. But eo, yeah, thank you so much for your time. This was a fun conversation. Yeah, it was
0: such a pleasure, Mario.
1: And that's a wrap on this week's show, which was brought to you by UCAN. If you want long-lasting energy without the big crash, Give UCAN products a try before your next long run. UCAN is offering Morning Shakeout listeners a super cool sample pack. It includes one packet of UCAN Superstarch drink mix, one packet of UCAN protein drink mix, and one UCAN snack bar, all for under 5 bucks. Best part, it includes free shipping. Get it for yourself at generationucan.com slash morningshakeout and see what you think. My thanks to all of you for listening into this episode. If you want to support the podcast, the easiest way is by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your audio content and leaving a rating and a review. It'll only take a minute, but it helps other listeners discover the show, not to mention it means a lot to me. I'm super appreciative for all the love and support you've thrown my way so far. Really, I'm just blown away by it all. So thank you so, so much. One final thanks from my man, John Isaac, for all his audio and editing work behind the scenes. He is the reason that this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. So thank you, John. All right, that's all I've got for now. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.